This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Guys, bellacatering.com.au, one of Sydney's and Australia's best catering companies, are experiencing the bust, the strain, the challenges of COVID-19 that almost everyone who is listening to this episode undoubtedly is. So if you guys want to eat out, you don't want to cook, and you want to have absolutely delicious catered quality meals brought to your house anywhere in the Sydney area, bellacatering.com.au. They are dear friends of the show. Glenn and Maria and their team are amazing. Um, the only real misfit is Glenn. Um, he's a, an absolute lunatic. But the rest of the team are my very good people. And uh, and I really encourage you guys to get there and get their stuff. It is absolutely delicious. Now, thanks to Bella Catering. Episode 42 of All the President's Minutes. This is an excerpt from All the President's Men, written by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Gerstein would instruct artists to cooperate if the Post would not reveal that it was dealing with his office. That evening, Bernstein received a phone call from Dardis. Dardis was in a hurry and didn't want to talk on the telephone. He had subpoenaed some of Barker's telephone and bank records, and Bernstein was welcome to fly down to Miami to discuss them. Bernstein asked him if he knew the origin of a sum of $89,000 that US Attorney Silbert had been deposited in and withdrawn from Barker's bank account in Miami that spring. It's a little more than $89,000, said Dardis. More like $100,000, asked Bernstein. A little more. Where'd the money come from? Mexico City, Dardis replied. A businessman there, a lawyer. He would not give Bernstein the lawyer's name, but he said he would discuss it if Bernstein would come to Florida. He could not see Bernstein for a few days, so they agreed to meet on Monday, July 31. Sussman approved the trip. Bernstein habitually arrived at airports moments before departure time. Monday, as he ran for the plane, he grabbed a post and a New York Times from a newsstand and sprinted for the gate. He was off the ground when he read the three-column Times headline, Cash in Capital Raid Traced to Mexico. Bernstein directed his ugliest thoughts to Gerstein and Dardis. The time story unto Walter Rugaba's byline carried a Mexico City dateline. Bernstein was almost certain that Rugaba had gotten the information in Miami and then flown to Mexico to file. The story cited sources close to investigation without mentioning the FBI, the federal government, or the Justice Department. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a couple of gentlemen who I've become friendly with over the interwebs. They too have an incredible podcast called Uber Busters. They allowed me to come on and gush very, very much and do a terrible uh, Harvey Dent impression from The Dark Knight um, on their That's show. Great. On their show. Um, uh, and and for all the podcasts that I do, whether it's One Heat Minute, Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans, I pop on doing Kermit Vice, Josie and the Podcats, all the President's Minutes. I just don't get to do that impression enough, so I thank them very uh, much for letting me be a part of that. Uh, they are Liam Billingham, and George Frigopoulos. Uh, George is an academic and a poet, and Liam is, well, he's a filmmaker, he's been in production, he's done documentaries, he's been in the theatre, and uh, and so these guys, you know, 
love to clash and I think they have a special ingredient on their show, which is that they call bullshit on each other about every four and a half seconds. So I thoroughly enjoy talking <laughs> to them. Um, for their- I'm already angry at George. <laughs> I, for no good reason, just furious. <laughs> I'm just mad. I, I think that's a good Irish Catholic. It's an essential ingredient to any good listening. So I thought they'd be great to talk to about this show. And, um, and also Liam has preemptively taken the claim to fame of tipping me over the edge um, uh, to doing the Zodiac podcast which I can safely say on this show, he's right because it was just that final nail in the coffin that if I didn't do it, someone else was going to. It was Gentlemen. definitely not Manola Dargis or Poppleman. <laughs> they definitely had nothing to do with it. Oh, look, they had some collective weight behind them. And Bill Gibberry, all three. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. This is awesome. This is great. So we haven't talked about this movie yet. And, but I want to, I'm interested to know, like, especially probably let's kick off with you, George, because you're very much a more, uh, a polit- a bit of a political theorist when it comes to that sort of thing. Where does all the president's men fare in, in cinema or cinematic portrayals, or at least that kind of, you know, as grisly authentic as we all allowed movies to be when they're coming to sort of portray real life events. Yeah. So it's obviously really interesting to see this film uh, within kind of today's political context. Um, and that we could talk a little bit more about that, at least within the political context within the United States. I mean, I wonder to what degree it's also applicable to political context outside of the United States. But obviously it's an American film. It's dealing with American politics, dealing with American politics in the early to mid-1970s. So kind of have to address that. Um, but while I was watching it, and I was just really captured by its approach to kind of um, conspiratorial thinking, conspiratorial conspiratorial politics in general. And one thing that was just like really striking. So about halfway through, I texted Liam and I was like, wow, this film is fucking amazing. And he wrote back, he's like, yes, it reminds me of Zodiac. I mean, everything reminds Liam of Zodiac in some sort of way. I don't mean to interrupt, but your first text was, wow, red person Adonis. Oh, no, I I I was also completely and utterly struck by Robert Redford's beauty in this film. I was like, my God, he's a handsome man. But also, he's a man that that makes you want to buy corduroy. And that should be illegal. Yes. Oh, he's like a man's man. Yeah. But there's also, like, he's rugged, but he's also, like, softly feminine. Anyway, we don't have to talk about, <laughs> about that. No, no, no. Please keep going. Write a poem please, about it. Please keep going. I'll write, I'll, I'll write a poem. I'll write a sonnet about it. Oh. But what was really striking to me about it was, um, yeah, just its approach to, like, the procedural as well. And just that, obviously, it's building towards um, a certain kind of truth and a certain kind of uh, conclusion that historically speaking, obviously we all know like where it's going, but just the, the amount of, let's say data and of information and of leads and of sources, it's all building to a cohesive kind of entire, it's, it's building up to something cohesive. It's building up to something that eventually resolves itself. And what's interesting, like to compare it to something like Zodiac or to another film that I think is more like it should be JFK, like Oliver Stone's JFK is that in those later films, obviously, nothing gets easily resolved, either like, let's say, in JFK or in Zodiac. So to think about it also kind of as a conspiratorial kind of procedural, but in the way in which the there's no cohesive end to it, right? So that there's no sense of closure. And in that way, it's like a really kind of interesting, almost like modernist like approach to conspiratorial procedural, because again, it kind of, it's complicated, it's dense, but there's a truth to it. 
Um, and obviously, again, that has a lot to do with the history behind it, but also comparing it to something like JFK or like Zodiac, where, again, it's open-ended till the very end. So I was also really just drawn by, again, like the density to it and um, just how fucking, yeah, like, God, I just, the historical detail is like amazing. Like we, I was rewatching that our minute of it and I saw like two or three times and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot at the end that there was like this thing about like Mexican chucks, for example. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> if I get to the end of the film, I totally fucking forgot about the Mexican chucks. Uh, but also, yeah, this film slaps. It's fucking amazing. George <laughs> <laughs> Psychopolis. I love it. I love it. Liam, you and I have talked on and off air a few times about our affinity for these kind of dense procedurals and going, yeah. getting taken down the rabbit hole. We've also talked about Spotlight in its own different way in a sort of an where this is more clinical with the facts and about morality, um, uh, uh, mor- morality as a byproduct of journalism. Um, you know, spotlight, which I know you and I have an affinity for, has that weird thing of Love like it. it has to, it sort of sifts through to find people's morality because people have kind of blocked it out because of the cityscape that they're in. So I, I know you've got an affinity for it, but could you talk a little bit about for folks listening just your relationship with this movie and and definitely in relation to Zodiac? Well, you know, I think I love. I think my favorite genre in general is a is a is a detective film. Yes. I just think that there's something inherently that's just it for me. Like if I had to watch detective films for the rest of my life, I would be fine with that. But I think that I have a very very broad definition of of what of what a detective film can be. And like I mean, the, this has detective thriller in the tagline. I think it's like the most devastating detective thriller of the year, or whatever they say. But I think there's a couple things for me. Um, I like, and this is something we talk a lot about on Uber Busters is I like that these films deal with different types of masculinities that you see. Um, And I think that that's really interesting because, you know, the sort of iconic ones for better or for worse are about men. This is about men. Spotlight is spotlight, you know, little bit more going on, but the main sort of conflicts are with men. Zodiac is absolutely a, a, a movie about men. Um, so I really like that aspect of it. I had, a, I had, I, I had someone, uh, a fellow film critic in Australia as we were walking out of a screening, we walked out of the gray, Joe Carnahan's the gray. Oh, that's a man movie. Oof. And, and I, which, which I loved. It was my favorite movie that year. And, uh, and that's the same year that the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight Rises came out incidentally. So it was my fa- it, it, it eclipsed Batman, um, which is, which is an wow. incredibly hard thing to do. And, uh, that, love, that, it, Bray. That, love it. that person diagnosed me. They're like, Oh Blake, that's such a you movie. You just love dude movies <laughs> about dudes in crisis. And I was like, sure. Like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Th- thanks. Oh, oh, oh. That, thanks. I guess that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Well, and I even think um, Inherent Vice has a lot of that in oh, it, yeah. too. So it does seem to be like a, a thing. But one of the things that stuck out to me about this movie, and this is my, I'd seen this, it's actually funny. I saw this movie the first time in 2000 and probably 2007. I saw it around the, the time that Zodiac came out. Right. And I don't know if it was just before or just after, but it, it might have been that I saw Zodiac had my mind blown and an older, wiser friend was like, well, you have to see all the presidents, men," And we watched it. And one thing that I think this genre gets, this film in particular is the best version of it, is that, and I wrote this down while I was um, watching the movie, especially, especially our little bit, 
because there's that exchange they have where it's like, there's not, you don't know a lot about these guys. There, there's no scene where you get like Hoffman, uh, you don't get Carl, you don't get what, either one of their backstories. You just get them in action the entire time. And I think that that's, I mean, I think that that hues close to maybe like a Western kind of mentality a little bit. And that's so inherent to American filmmaking, but there's this character defined by action and forward momentum thing that these movies have. And I think it's like, you know, to use a masculine crisis kind of thing, it's so ballsy to just put them in a situation and to see them keep existing. So I find it very compelling when it's almost like their background and their story doesn't matter. It's how we come to understand them in terms of action. Like, I think you could view these guys as like, you could almost describe them in a word. And it's that definition of them as characters. It's almost like the way that David Mamet talks about acting, where it's like you have a goal and an objective, and that defines character. And I think <laughs> yes. this movie is a great example of like, Dustin Hoffman might as well be playing Dustin Hoffman. Robert Redford might as well be playing Robert Redford. But in those scenes, they have a goal in every single scene, and they just go for it. And the fact that that repeats for two hours and 20 minutes is like, it's just such an incredibly compelling movie in that regard. So I just, I just find the, the economy of it really compelling and the kind of like masculinity of it very compelling and always worth revisiting. There's a great quote. I, I quickly slid out of frame while you were talking there, Liam, and it wasn't because I was not, not interested and focused, but it was because I had to, I had to grab, I had to grab this. Uh, I've got Roger Ebert's four star reviews between 1967 and 2007. It's a, just a little shell. Uh, uh, a gra- it's a great compendium of just the best movies. It's a great curation. But his opening paragraph to his Zodiac review in 2007 is Zodiac is all is the all the president's men of serial killer movies with Woodward and Bernstein played by a cop and a cartoonist. It's not merely based on California's infamous killings, but seems to exude the very stench and provocation of the case. The killer who was never caught generously supplied so many clues that Sherlock Holmes might have cracked the case in his sitting room, but only a newspaper cartoonist was stubborn enough and tunneled away long enough to piece together a convincing case against a man who was perhaps guilty. And so I, I think that that's, that's what's so wonderful about this. I, I, I kind of uh, take a slightly different tact on the characters. I love how they're not formed. I love characters who aren't so good because I think that there's like uh, these guys, especially at the beginning of the movie, um, unlike a mammoth thing. So to compare a great movie I've watched recently is like Ronan, like mammoth does like mammoth wrote Ronan, which is a terrific film. And John Frankenheim is a wonderful director because he creates the space that feels really authentic, you know, and people are speaking multiple languages and you just get that. Like you, the people who stick out like a sore thumb are those who aren't ready to be there. They're like, get the hell out of here. You know, Sean Bean, as my best mate calls him, Sian Bian, um, not a very good, uh, uh, thief. So he's got to go. Um, and, and I think that that's, what's great about this movie is these guys aren't so great yet. You know, Carl's definitely more experienced. Woodward's definitely way more, uh, way better at extracting information, but it's only the complementary nature of their relationship that really yeah. starts to get them to be better. And I, I love that about Zodiac too, is because Graysmith is so green at the beginning and, and Paul Avery is so blustery and like he, he could piece it together, but he's got too much ego about it. And it's just like, and everyone's too, and, and, and Ruffalo's too, uh, too closed in. Like he's got the blinkers on like a horse. And so it's just, I, I, I think what we like also is 
we like to watch people squand, you know, squander <laughs> their opportunities yeah. to succeed um, and stuff things up. And I really like that. And also, there's one major difference. If there was one thing that maybe you know eclipses uh, uh, all the president's men, I, I think maybe there, there's not a more iconic scene than an orgy that stars Tommy Lee Jones and Joe Pesci um, all draped in gold, as uh, as in uh, JFK. Uh, maybe there could be a minute podcast just on the orgy uh, because it's just it, it has, <laughs> George. It has to be one of the most Hollywood calling. <laughs> it's been a very long time since I've seen that film, but I remember it being absolutely batshit. George, it's playing on your TV in the background. <laughs> you don't tell the audience. You've that. got a full length. I just have it on mural. He's got a mural of that orgy scene in his house. We can see it. Um, <laughs> so, on his T-shirt. So yeah, I, I think uh, there's so much. There's so much to unpack in this movie, um, and it's. I, I kind of really am. I really am enjoying uh, with this particular text, and I think it's it, it's the great movie text stand up to this level of scrutiny is that we can unpack it for all its authenticity and the feelings that we get um, about you know accomplishment and professionalism and things like that. But I think it's like when you isolate moments, and I think in this minute that we're talking about, we've hit another brick wall. Though we've just broken through with the deep throat scene there are still things happening. There are still things not working. There are still leads that are getting away from them that the New York times are getting. And it's like, we're now trying to push through. We're trying to break through in underground car parks. We're resorting to everything we can and we're still being beaten. And so I really enjoy that right now, this is a bit of a transitional series of scenes. And this is a very transitional mm-hmm. moment where it's like, we've lost all the momentum. It's completely bottomed out. Woodward's now just been in the car park with deep throat, getting all this information and now the momentum is slowly starting to kick back on, but they're still behind the eight ball. They're still scrambling. And so this is what I love about where we're going to arrive at this particular moment um, mm-hmm. in the film is, is, is that. So I think a good part would be right now to, to pause. Um, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to watch this together. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Damn New York Times. Phone calls from the burglars in Miami to the committee to reelect. Fifteen phone calls. At least fifteen phone calls, and those phone calls were made as early as March 15th, which is the full three months before the break-in. $89,000 issued in the name of a prominent Mexican lawyer. $89,000 in Mexican checks? Why didn't we get this? I don't, who are their sources? And I even know somebody who works on the phone company here. Carl, if John Mitchell wanted your phone records, you'd be running around yelling invasion of privacy. Is the New York Times article accurate? Yeah, but I can't get you a fuller listing. Why? They've subpoenaed all of Bernard Barker's phone records. I think they're trying to find out if the Watergate burglars broke any Florida law. That's great. Yeah. Can't believe we just missed Deep Throat. That's gonna be my first <laughs> the cut there is actually amazing too. It's like it's exactly at that minute, the minute mark where we switch over to the. I was so excited. I was watching it. I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I'm really. I'm really sorry. I thought you I'm know. Not upset. I. I, I no, it, it, it's. As, as you guys know, um, I tend to break the rules so we can obviously talk about the deep throat scene, but I actually really like this scene um, because just the staging choice strikes me because you get this up close and personal. It's a, it's a phenomenal transition, car park to print. So for a yeah. split second, you feel like some of the information that deep throat's got has 
allowed them to progress to the next level. But obviously it's the times and it's like, oh, God damn it. How did the times get this story? They move into this and then it's just, you know, for about 20 seconds of this minute, it is a deep background. And I, I don't mean that as a deep background in the uh, sort of press espionage sense. I mean, they're in the deep background of the frame. <laughs> they're just right yeah. at the very, very, very back and talking. You're just seeing the staging of the newsroom, like everything else is happening. They're there. And, and then we at least get to see, a, you know, a, a sort of pulsating day-to-day Washington, D.C. And as I was watching this minute a few times in preparation, I was thinking, God, wouldn't it be nice to have lunch outside where there are people? Um, so, yeah, it's, well, I, I, think, about, I, think yeah. It's, I think it's a phenomenal scene. I think also the transition, too, from, like, these three different spaces, right? So you grow from, like, the car park, which is obviously in the shadows, and you go to the newsroom, and then you go, like, directly outside. Like, the juxtaposition, I think, between the two of them and the two kind of um, – uh, the kind of work that they both do is like really, I think, kind of uh, uh, brought to light in those um, scenes. Like Bernstein's character is, w- is way more like the charming kind of like schmoozes with people, like a talk. Did you say Adonis? <laughs> no, that's more the that's more the word word character. <laughs> so, like, I think also like the juxtaposition there is like really um, compelling as well. Like it works very well as it, it, it conceptually and visually gives you a sense of who these characters are and how they kind of do their best work. You know, one thing that I thought about while watching the movie is how much do we care about the plot? And what I mean when I say that is like when this movie came out, it was based on a bestseller that I think a lot of people had read. It was like such a current piece of news in a way that like, I wonder if someone people going were buying the- people were buying transcripts of, really? of 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 the Watergate trials. Like you could buy I books. Mean, I'm you could yeah. buy you could buy books like um you know Slow Burn, which is Leon Nafark's amazing podcast series um, yeah, from good. Slate. You know, look, anyone who's listening to all the president's minutes, it's worth your time because Leon doesn't concentrate on. The, the the main thrust of the story, which is ex- was precisely what all the president's men is doing, and, and Goldman and and Pakula and Redford, I've decided that that's the focus they're going to take. Leon it, Leon wants people like Ken Dahlberg, who screams, "My neighbor's wife is kidnapped!" Like Leon's focus is the craziness that surrounds mm-hmm. this entire Watergate thing, and so it's really really interesting. Um, you know, it's really really interesting if as a as a companion piece, but yeah, I I, I I think that it's, yeah, it's this very, very strange, there are so many weird little potential threads that take you down. And, and this is one moment where we get to explore, like you said, with the Mexican checks, it's like yeah. this one little moment where you exploring something and it's a dead end and the movie even does dead ends well, I think. I think it also is so, um, such an amazing piece of cinema with like a capital C because this, you can watch this movie today and not be like, oh yeah, I know all this stuff. Like it's a movie unto itself without, yes. without feeling time with, without, it, it feels timeless. It feels ageless. Um, I feel like feel, you know, not to throw shade, but Spielberg's the post already feels more dated than this movie because yeah. it's so specifically focused on the events. And this sort of transcends the events and becomes like a, a movie about duration and time and, people in a wide shot in relationship to one another and a guy with a very specific thermos sitting in the park (laughs) who exists exists outside of the text. Like the supporting characters are so fully realized that like 
it's just amazing to me that you could really, it's, it's an unfortunate byproduct of our, I watched this movie, this is the first movie I watched on the TV I just bought, so I got to really watch it the right way. But you could, you could turn your head away for 15 seconds and miss something really critical to the plot, <laughs> which makes me wonder, like, I feel like this is as much a mood and an atmosphere and a tonal piece as it is a movie about a, 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 a sort of like very, 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 you know, specific and historic events in American and, and political history. Like Pakulis is, has really transcended like the talky courtroom or investigative, investigative drama. You can see why like Fincher would look back on this movie or spotlight, which I think is a much more down to earth procedural in some ways. Like I'm just so blown away by the form of this movie. And I know some of your guests have talked about that, but like, it's just amazing how, how controlled it is. And every frame feels really um, specific and, and, and chosen as opposed to figuring it out. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a movie that exists in a, in a real cinematic way. Yeah. Just before George jumps in, I, I just wanted to say that that is something that I'm continuing to wrestle with is that one would never think of it, but this is the most dominant news story for like five years. Everyone in America was watching the televised Watergate courtroom cases, buying the transcripts from the White House where they became bestsellers, buying the uh, you know sorry the transcripts of the calls, the transcripts of the court cases, these huge documents that would like became doorstops in people's houses, you know triggered this entire I don't know like an age of conspiratorial thinking and all those sorts of things and the calculated choices that Goldman and Pacula make to omit things that people don't need to know yeah. because it's so like omnipresent in culture that's like we don't need to mention that we don't need to mention that people know it that has inadvertently become this like avant-garde artistic choice about what to withhold <laughs> and has then somehow created this timeless this timeless thing for such a deeply specific thing which i continue to wrestle with because it's both deeply specific and deeply on time and then deeply timeless at the same time right well i also think that sorry george i don't mean to well, I'm no, no, no. but I think that if this were made now, it would be a 15 hour HBO <laughs> series. And like, I was reading, um, I was reading, we're the, the opposite. I think it would be so streamlined and yeah. it would take away, unless obviously again, like you have like an auteur, like Fincher doing this, like that all of this kind of like information, this like data overload would yeah. be streamlined in such a way that it would be far easier to digest or kind right. of or like a, like a six episode, 30 minute per episode podcast, for example, or something <laughs> yes, like that. Yes. All, but I think that what's so powerful about what, what I was reading the, the, um, uh, an interview with uh, the film critic A.S. Hamra this week. And he was talking about how like the best piece of cinema he's seen since quarantine is that interview with the mayor of Las Vegas. Saying <laughs> thing. He said he's like, watched he watched it like, the whole 30 minute thing. And he was like, because it's, a, it's cinema. It's like, a, a limited amount of time watching this person give this insane interview and you don't watch the sound bites and you don't watch those things. You watch this thing unfold and like, there's so much that's omitted by the sheer reality, but like what she's saying is so batshit crazy that it's, it's so specifically like it's enough. It's just enough. And that's what I think is so great about this period in American, in American film history is that like, they were like, let's make a two hour and 20 minute movie about this thing. And as a result, by being like, this is a movie, there's a duration to this. It does not go on for three or four more seasons. We have this incredibly uh, 
yes. direct and impact. You just don't get it in any other medium. Like this is just such a fucking movie. Pardon my language, but it's <laughs> just a, a movie. It's, but that's my profound takeaway. It's like, they don't make them like this anymore. And, you know, except for David Fincher's Zodiac masterpiece. <laughs> so, George, please. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I just, again, like the, the form uh, of it is, is again, like fascinating. And again, like going back to something like Liam said earlier, like about, yeah, it's, it's totally, it's totally so tightly controlled and so tightly made. Um, and every choice is so deliberate, but again, there is this kind of like unbridled chaos to it that I mm. just find so like fucking riveting, um, and so powerful. And another thing also that, that again, I really don't know what to make of, I mean, other than that, obviously as the events were unfolding in the seventies, it was clear to everybody who, who was paying attention that they were kind of obviously, um, historically important events, but the proximity of it also to those events is kind of like fascinating. So this film was released in 1976 mm-hmm. and the scandal was 72 to 74. So it's kind of crazy to think about its proximity to the events yeah, I can't, uh, in of themselves. I, I'm never going to understand it. I don't think in, I don't think yeah. by the end, I just want to qualify for everyone who's listening. I don't think we're going to have a definitive answer on how incredible that is. Like it's, they are literally talking Bernstein and Woodward to Redford about the book that they're going to write at least yeah. in 74. You know, they're talking, so, yeah. they're talking about it. He's, wow. he's telling them that the book should be about them. You know, the, 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 the tale should be focused on their journey. And so you start with that and you go, hold on. So back in 74, they're already producing the movie. It's released on January 1st, 76. So it has to have been shooting for pretty much the whole of 75 and probably pre-production at the time, 74. So they're doing this whole thing. They're getting it shot. They're doing it. They're enlisting all the support of these wonderful actors. They're getting edited and it's released in 76. And it's like the immediacy of that to end, like literally the, the end typing of the movie signifies what has happened literally two years earlier. Yeah. It's crazy. It's almost, it's almost, yeah, I, I guess I never really thought about that because there's something. It would so be like Fincher making so- Zodiac, but, making Zodiac two years after Zodiac. You know what I'm saying? Like the luxury of yeah, hindsight, yeah, the of luxury of hindsight is that's what, that's what I think that it's unquantifiable. The unquantifiable element of this movie is that usually you would think that someone with such an amount of hindsight and such an amount of research and such an amount of deliberate thinking around, okay, well, what do we emit and things like that. But the immediacy of the event here has made them make, tactical choices that then seems to resonate just as equally as something that is, you know, seminal that can be made 20 years later that has like all this hindsight thinking and can be very deliberate and have someone to be influenced by the events of the time to be really stew over it and make those choices. But yeah, that's what I still can't wrap my head around. I can't wrap my head around that they all went through it and they made all these choices. And it's, I think one, one interesting point of comparison, contemporarily speaking would be um, like zero dark 30, obviously which I believe they have to refilm the end, right? After um, Bin Laden's um, killing. Um, like they had made the film, if I'm correct, and then they obviously like went back and kind of like included that. Yeah, well, uh, there's a really... They added some stuff, yeah. They, they added some stuff, yeah. So, they, they, they added some stuff, but what is really hilarious is in Scott Z. Burns, who's a great writer, director now in his own right, mm-hmm. um, did a film called The Report, which is available on Amazon Prime internationally if you guys have got it listening it's extremely worth your while. And Scott Z Burns and Steven Soderbergh are friends and frequent collaborators. And Scott Z Burns wrote Contagion and also loves all the president's men. 
Um, so when you watch the report, the report is very much in this style. And what you hear about in the report is them talk about how that basically Zero Dark Thirty is just a CIA propaganda film <laughs> that was fed to those people. And because they made it with such immediacy, they had CIA sources and they were thinking they were getting the real information. But what they yeah. were really getting, that would be like saying that, you know, Lenny Riefenstahl had the real information about what was going on in Berlin in the 30s, right? And then just made films about it. Whereas like it's, no, it's actually just a deeply propagandistic CIA text. Yeah, yeah. it just has great actors yeah, in it, and so uh, yeah, it's it's now a movie that is really difficult to watch because you're like, this is just all horseshit. They were waterboarding the shit out of people, and it was crazy. Point we would have been like, okay, we're talking about the same kind of like issues again and again, and part of it is that like those the what I would say are tend tend to be proto fascist um, kind of. <laughs> cinematic issues that happen. Some might say reactionary. George, I actually have a question <laughs> for you. George, can, so, ooh, George, can I, can I ask, can I, can I commandeer the podcast for a minute? Cause I have a, I have a question. That, Please that, do. Well, it's not your podcast. So maybe we should. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I think you said you had a question for me. I do have a question for you. So oh. what do you, what do you think the implications of making a, a film about, let's say contemporary politics are like when you're taking an event like this, um, you know, when I, when I think about great political writers, a lot, a lot of the times they will, they will, Brecht will write the irresistible rise of Arturo Uwe to be about Nazi Germany, but it's a gangster film about like 1915 Chicago. So what, not that I think Pakula has the same sort of rightful axe to grind, but what, what do you think the implications of making a sort of up to the moment political film are? And, and can I and and George, can I also just add another example because I think the Brecht example is phenomenal. But at the same time, yeah. a retroactive interview that John Carpenter gave about the production of Escape from New York was that that was his Watergate Good. movie. Mm. So he's yeah. he he was writing that when Watergate was happening. So his implication was his his paranoia ran its course into a science fiction dystopia, and obviously Brecht is running it back into a 1915 gangster. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, in, there's a lot of hope and, um, belief in truth in this film without question. Mm -hmm. yes. Um, and that's what I was saying like earlier about it's kind of procedural aspects and kind of its aspirations for reaching some sort of kind of conclusive, um, realization about obviously the conspiracy that they're trying to like unfold. So like in that way, like it, the film is very, I think optimistic. It's very, um, I think clear in its ideology in terms of like, listen, there are conspiratorial, there are conspiratorial forces at play. Um, it is up to us as let's say intrepid reporters to discover the truth behind them and to reveal them to the public. And that doing as such will in some sort of way, obviously, um, cure that kind of contagion or bring some good to the world, whatever the case might be. I mean, I think what's kind of, again, like interesting, again, to compare it to something like Zodiac, which obviously sees the world in a much darker, more cynical, jaded way, right? Like that all of this information that you might gather, like all of these kind of leads that you'll follow, um, all of the sources, all of the clues, they will only lead to lead you to a kind of provisional conclusion. And whether or not, let's say, you do reach that truth, it's really up to you to decide. But there's no cure for the ills of society, right? Yes. Like the knowledge, let's say, that you have of how the world operates will not cure you of the reality that that world is a shitty place. 
And I think what this film is basically saying, and, and I haven't seen the post, but I imagine the post makes a similar kind of argument, but not as, uh, as creative a way that Liam is shaking his head. That, <laughs> it, it's, it's focused that on, it's focused on the Panama. It's focused on the Panama papers. And uh, to, to be honest, it's, papers, it, 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 oh, sorry, Pentagon papers rather. And it's focusing on um, the Pentagon papers and it's focusing on that idea. I think you are right though. The idea of like, there is a rot in society. It's a little bit more bleak about a rot. Like a, there is a fundamental systemic rot in politics to admit or, um, you know, uh, have some trade craft, shall we say, if we're using an espionage term, have some trade craft with the truth. Um, um, and, and, and that can, that isn't necessarily political. It's just systemic um, that, you know, people make a, tr- a calculated choice behind, behind lines in what they think is doing best, but ultimately it's potentially bad. But I, I, I think you're, I think you're right about the truth and the elements of truth here. And I think that definitely at the time, and we've talked about Zodiac a lot, but I think this is a pertinent, comparison is at the end of Zodiac, you know that the Zodiac killer has never been caught. And I think at the end of all the president's men at the time that it was made, that ending about journalists being out there and although it might seem inconclusive, working, they, they can get a result, but work still needs to be done because politics still exists and there are still people that are trying to do this and they're out there tirelessly working. I think post-2016, um, you know, especially in the age of Trump, as this movie and this movie seems to live in waves uh, with new presidential elections in the United States. It's like it is a salve yeah, because yeah. people can work and make this happen. But at the same time, it's also like this movie shouldn't keep being specific and keep being prescient every single yeah. damn cycle of politics. But it is, and so then the question yeah. becomes like, actually, this isn't necessarily as hopeful as we may have thought it was it still carried the cynicism that no these guys have to keep working to keep people honest because the inclination yeah, or the reflex the typing, is typing, typing. you got to keep typing the reflex is that at some point it's going to get bad again someone is going to do something bad i feel the ending of this movie is almost and actually, George, I was thinking a little bit about how you might react to it because I was, <laughs> well, I do a podcast with you, but the ending of the movie almost feels um, too hopeful to me. At the end of this movie, maybe it's the climate we live in and the, the post-truth, the post-truth truthiness, the, the goddamn cesspool of American life right now. But um, there's almost a optimism to the end of this movie that doesn't play very well for me anymore. And I don't, I mean, I, I think it's a ma- I think it's a real, real like match. It almost plays as a little too positive to me at the end of this movie. But yeah. like, that's also another interesting moment too, because you often have like all these appeals to kind of, again, supposedly these um, higher functions of the law. Right. So in that scene where they're sitting on the park bench and Bernstein's like, Hey, can you give me that guy's phone records? And the guy from the phone company is like, well, you know, if, if he was asking for your phone records, you'd be fucking livid and you'd be talking about yes. uh, right. privacy issues. And often, you know, these kind of questions come up throughout the movie about upholding, you know, freedom of the press and about the Constitution. So there are, again, like these, con- and this is also like to some degree how it's kind of optimistic in a certain kind of um, liberal sense, right? Like that it's just about really kind of being truthful, being honest. And that there are these kind of that there are these kind of appeals to these ideals that are much larger than political ideologies, and that's also like to me where the film kind of like fails, because yes, there's like something rotten 
in the state of Denmark, but it's also to some degree see the argument being is made that like, oh yes, if we could all just get together and be reasonable and rational people, that the president of the United States should fucking commit crimes, um, <laughs> then everything will be better. And that those issues aren't dealt with on the level of politics. And that politics is really just about like, well, if you have power, you will use that power um, to destroy your enemies. And especially also if you're fucking evil, you will definitely use that power to destroy <laughs> your enemies and not try to just kind of like rationalize with them. That's what's so crazy though. This is, this is what is crazy. Nixon was, for better or worse, one of the most popular presidents ever. His, his almost certainty of re-election makes all of the actions that he does surrounding this that much crazier. Like it is, it is literally like, like that's what's so crazy. It's that in a time of unparalleled influence and unparalleled, near unparalleled approval, despite all of the craziness that was going on and actually being a pretty capable diplomat. An example I used to folk is there's a great Apollo 11 documentary Mm. It came out uh, last year uh, in 2019. It's absolutely stunning. If you haven't got a chance to see it, pl- do. It's like a whole bunch of 65 millimeter footage was found in NASA of, of the actual Apollo 11 launch and everything that happened. And, and it's all been digitally remastered and it's just assembled into this stunning document and it's beautiful. But there's a moment in it where Nixon delivers this beautiful, eloquent speech about, you know, human prosperity and I watched that and I was like, and, you know, for a guy who's doing a podcast on all the presidents, man, I'm like, you know what? Nixon wasn't a bad guy. <laughs> I was just like, he's not that bad. In, in reference in reference to the current political uh, machine, I'm like, you know what? He's all right. He's okay, this Nixon. Yeah, he, did, he did bomb Cambodia, like. <laughs> I know. My father, oh, I know. My father, Bill Billingham, a uh, lifelong uh, Democrat, um, used to call, uh, wrote speeches for Mike Dukakis and used to um, call Robert McNamara on the phone and leave threatening voicemails. The only Republican that my dad ever voted for was Richard Nixon. The first time. Did he say why? No, my mother wouldn't let him talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, I think it was because I think he didn't like the alternative, but I mean, you know, my dad was like a blue blooded, very much a Democrat, but voted for Richard Nixon. So if that gives you a sense of, I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I can't, I, I have trouble fathoming it, but he did it. So gives you a sense of how popular Richard Nixon was when the most Democrat Democrat you can possibly imagine, Bill Billingham voted for fucking Richard Nixon. <laughs> Disgusting. Uh, but, but it also, you know, it also plays to that year, right? Like it plays to mm, the reelection and totally. there's a whole bunch of other stuff in the film. You know, there, there's a couple of brief moments in that newsroom where there's a crowd around a TV when there's an announcement of, you know, uh, stepping down as vice president and all of the, you know, quote unquote rat fucking to kill any potential decent candidates that were going to run against him. So he ended up winning that second election in a landslide essentially. But yeah, it's, it's just such a strange, a really strange thing that you know this guy who's in that level of dominance would be wanting to resort to that it's it's craziness do you guys have you guys looked at the oscar tolls for this movie just out of curiosity like what it won and what so i think this is worth noting um it won four oscars it was nom. it was it won four oscars it won best act 
supporting actor, Jason Robards, best writing, William Goldman, no surprise there, best art direction, George Jenkins and George James, best sound, uh, best, and then best sound. And so sound, as I understand it, in the 70s would have been what this, the Academy is doing now, which is a combination of combining mixing and editing. That's apparently the new thing, because no Academy member understands the difference between mixing and editing. It's complicated. <laughs> so the fact that this movie won best sound is really, really interesting to me, because the sound in this movie fucking incredible and i think that to jump to jump from the the pause political conversation to talk about like the the, the craft in this movie one thing that i think pakula does and the, the sound team does so well is that you you have to lean in a little bit to understand what people are saying and i mean that in the best way we're like the typewriter the people yelling across the room the fact that in that park scene you're a little bit like what what did that guy say? Like just a little bit, just like the hint of work you have to do. And I think that like in a two hour, and this is another thing that in a two hour, 20 minute movie, that's jam packed with information. The fact that the movie asks you a little work to work, just like a little bit to understand what people are saying. is like pretty amazing. Like, I think there's, I think, you know, to, 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 to talk a little bit about our previous, conversation christopher nolan does that in a little bit in his movies too i think that like just the choice to make you work a little bit and the fact that this movie won best sound i think is a big big deal because i think often sound in, in, in films is relegated to like does it sound good or bad and like i think the sound mixing in this movie is on another level in terms of how it makes you feel as though you're mired in a conspiracy you're mired in an office environment you're on the streets of dc you're in a park you're you're having to kind of like Hoffman is mumbling and you have to be like, what, what did he say? That kind of stuff. It's all just, it's just a very nice. And I think that really comes alive in the park, in the park scene. Yeah. I, I think uh, one of the things that is frustrating in a lot of that sound things to talk about the Academy sometimes is just that if it's a war movie and there's bullets whizzing past and explosions, I think it's a, it's a much easier thing to talk about. But in this movie, you know, conversations on rooftops where they make a call that they're going to record them live so the planes that are interrupting the conversations on the roof of the q hotel is like at the time um uh, which yeah. i'm told by um great film critic nel minnow doesn't exist anymore um but like that they made that call they make the call to shoot in the park they make a call to shoot in the park make the call to shoot in the newsroom um t- uh, right in the far distance so you actually literally have to lean forward to think oh, what, what is redford saying right now i think and silence yeah. in this movie especially when you talk about sound as opposed to score, because the David Chai score is just so wonderful. But it's that integration, because so much of this movie is dead silent. Like, there's the chaotic sounds of The Office, but mm-hmm. but there is dead silence. There is streets, there is amplification of footsteps, you know, echoing in concrete sort of jungle environments. There is parks here where it's lively and people are talking and there's bikes riding past and buses and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, I just think that that is such a – it's such a really great choice because it's not, there's not a lot of showiness. There's not a lot of flash, mm-hmm. but there's so much, so much calculating and deliberate choices around what the oral landscape is doing to make you feel like you're in each of these spaces. Yeah. Like one of the only movies I feel like in the past 10 years that I think won but all these sound awards that felt like absolutely obvious to me was Fury Road. Like that movie just sounds yeah. unreal. I mean, everything about sounds, that movie is so, so, different. Sound, yeah. Sound, you know, it's the, unbelievable. the roars of those engines, the roars of those engines. Talk about, just, a, talk about a, um, 
a movie that you could talk minute by minute and probably have a, like your brain would explode, but it's so <laughs> goddamn good. I think there is a Mad Max minute show. There is a Mad Max minute oh show. God. I think they've done the Mad Maxes. I have no good new ideas. I thought I had new ideas. <laughs> Sometimes you do. Sometimes ideas. you do. The Mad Maxes, I think, um, the Mad Max Minute guys, and, and if they're listening, hi, I, I think at one point in time they were like, would you like to come on and chat? And I said, yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I've got something to say. It's, you know, it's some of Australia's most greatest cinematic exports. Um, but I, in fact, pointed them to a friend who'd actually written a book on uh, George Miller. I was like, you should probably talk to this guy. He mm-hmm. kind of wrote the book. <laughs> literally, yeah, literally, literally, literally. You should, you should probably speak to this guy. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, but look, yeah, I think there's flashy versions of it, and then there's just effortless, and it feels like here it's like this is a this is a good choice. Yeah, it's an amazing, and also just from a Pakula. Really, I, I think he's an underrated craftsman. Um, you know, I think he just knows what he's doing, and and the the, the craft never gets in the way of the form but the form of this movie is like rep it's really really unbelievable it's so goddamn good that'll do liam thank you ah thank you he's he's finished folks he's bowing he's bowing he's out the microphone no is we dropped. can keep talking let's keep talking We're let's good. do minute 43 let's go let's do he it just dropped the mic he's walked away he's like fuck it i'm done the sound choices i think are definitely um, powerful. Um, the ones that come um, to my mind explicitly are the ones, I mean, I think Liam's right and think about it, but like the way in which kind of the film is constantly drawing your attention and the way it does as such also on the level of sound is really kind of compelling. There is that one moment, for example, which I think is a couple of minutes before our minute where he's, um, Hoffman Bernstein is talking to that woman on that roof and the plane like flies over and like to go with it and she has to just kind of like yell over the sound like the plane yeah great choice and just like it's like yeah it's like i've been liking i've been liking this i've been liking this minute hearing the the slice of the paper when he's pulling up the new york times story like i just love that yeah yeah. like that's a you know again the movie's such a i don't know like a nostalgic tactile world right and you just go as soon as yeah, slices yeah, that yeah. paper i'm like i love that i just love that choice because it just feels like oh you're right there and you're doing that so no look it's 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 great gentlemen thank you so much for being a part of the show i really appreciate it i know this conversation derailed onto fury road it derailed onto burnout brecht it derailed onto zodiac many 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 times um but i but i just but i wanted to thank you so much for being a part of the show because um it's very very fun uh, to chat to you and uh, to chat to you about this minute and to and to get back to uh, uh to get out of the world of christopher nolan and to get into to dive deep into the world of alan j pakula is uh, is something that is, no has been a lot of fun Batman. You guys are done. Liam, with don't say anything about Christopher Nolan. Stop it with the <laughs> I, Christopher I, Nolan. I'm book. so fucking tired of Batman. <laughs> so am I actually. <laughs> like, what have we done? And there's still like eight more hours of film. Like to four go more movies. Oh yeah. That's What's right. the four more okay. movies you've got in the Batman canon to do? Well, we're doing Batman, Batman the, v Superman, Superman, Dawn of Dawn of Justice, um, um, Justice League. So, Justice are you, League. so are you doing which version of that are you doing? Are you doing the? We're doing. The theatrical ultimate, cut. The, they already watched. Cut. Okay. Okay. But our guest, Mike Carroll, um, has, is a big, big comic book guy and has seen both. And he's going to talk about the differences between the two. I just can't give another 30 minutes. To <laughs> that. And then we're doing Justice League Lego Batman. Lego Batman rules. Lego Batman rules. I heard really, yeah, yeah, you, you're, and then Joker. 
We're yeah. Just gonna talk about you. Cool. Good luck. That'll be it. Good luck. Thank but, you. Um, season four of the podcast um, is going to be um, in celebration of the uh, 100 year anniversary of the birth of Toshiro Mifune. Oh, wow. um, we're going to talk about the 16 films made in collaboration between Akuru Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune. Wow. Wow. Do you want to have you? Yeah, I'd like to have you on for an episode. Look, I would love that. I would love that. I, I, I will talk. I will talk Kurosawa and um, Toshiro Mifune anytime. That's a, that would be a great pleasure to dive out of. Uh, I, our people will contact your people. Can I guess? Can I guess what would be a, a Blake Howard uh, a, a movie you could talk about for a while? Yeah, can I guess from my list? Go, go. I would say you could really, you could go deep on any of the following: Stray Dog. Yes. High and low. Yes. Hidden Fortress. Yes. Not or as bad sleep. Wow. I'm I'm more of a Seven Samurai guy than a Hidden Fortress guy. But okay, okay. Yeah. but 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 that's you know that's the signature one. But yeah, any of those, any of those, I'm a huge fan. Why don't you you want, you want to do Seven Samurai? Do Seven Samurai? Shit, man, let's do it. Well, look, it's teased now on the show, so I guess I'll do it. I'm in. No, no pressure. Talk about there? one of the greatest films ever made. No pressure. Uh, so, yeah, it's really good. Well, you, you're yeah. like, cool, thanks, guys. Now I have to watch a three and a half hour movie again. No, it's right here. It's definitely worth it. It's right here. It's on the shelf. Yeah. That's what I have, too. Yes. The first Criterion I yeah. ever bought was the edition of that before that one. Yeah, beautiful. So like original. Beautiful Criterion collection Blu-ray. Ready I'm ready to rock and roll when you guys are. But thank you so much. Where where can they where can the folks who are listening to this show find you, gentlemen? George can be found on the internet looking at pictures of Robert Redford from the nineteen seventies. <laughs> wearing corduroy. Wearing corduroy. And, uh, wearing corduroy. You <laughs> and you can find me looking at pictures of Dustin Hoffman. Um, Uberbusters.com. That's www.oeuver. Wait, no. Oh my God, I spelled it wrong. O-E-U-V-R-E. <laughs> Busters.com. No one's ever going to spell it. But also, uh, the podcast is on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify. Spotify, yeah. Apple Podcast. All of the links will be in the description of the show. And if you are listening to this uh, from oneheatminute.com, there'll be links to the boys' shows and our show together and uh, and to the different seasons. Thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Blake. It was awesome. Appreciate it. This has been another episode of All the President's Minutes. We have a brand new schedule for the show kicking off right now. So if you're listening to this episode, episode 40 with Jason Bailey, um, you'll just need to know that now every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday uh, for the next coming months, you're going to have brand spanking new episodes of All the President's Minutes in your calendar in your schedule of listening we have a stack of other things happening on one heat minute productions as well every friday australian time a brand new show our seventh season on one heat minute productions is miami nice co-hosted by katie walsh where we go through michael mann's misunderstood masterpiece miami vice one topic one morsel at a time we go all over it. It is both a listen along and a watch along podcast um, where we will occasionally drink along while we're talking about it. Um, so we'd love you to check that out. And also on Saturdays Australian time, but Fridays US time, we still have our amazing increment vice dropping every single week with host Travis Woods and an array of amazing and talented guests. So check that out. Get it in your ears. If you want to support the show, Patreon forward slash Blake Howard. That's where all of our One Heat Minute production support can be. But right now in this crazy time of COVID, 
we just love if you could share and recommend the show to anyone who you think would dig it. We have a whole stack of back catalogue things. Nothing is behind a paywall. We have the whole one heat minute series. We have last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. We have contingent episodes, about 20 episodes going through and checking in on folks. Some of those will pop back up in the near future. And also Josie and the Podcats, a 12 episode limited series going through the 2001 satire of the music industry, Josie and the Pussycats, um, an episode at the time covering all the way from the inception of the characters through to the legacy of the 2001 film a stack of great episodes hosted by maria lewis um, and produced by myself so check that one out as well but this has been another episode of one eight minute productions thank you so much for listening again and if you're still listening what the hell are you doing go listen to the next episode